You're listening to Solar Insiders, the fortnightly update on the ins and outs of the solar industry and what it means for consumers, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading solar industry veteran Nigel Morris. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Clenergy, who provide innovative, high-quality solar solutions to the world. Sunwiz, Australia's leading service provider to the solar and storage industry. And Solar Analytics, suppliers of intelligent solar monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Solar Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its sister sites, One Step Off the Grid and the electric vehicle focused, thedriven.io. And joining me as usual is Nigel Morris, solar industry veteran from Solar Analytics. Nigel, how are you? Excellent. Thank you, Charles. Excellent. You've been, you've been on holidays. Well, yeah, that was, it was days ago. I'm, I'm, days I'm back, ago. In the, <laughs> back in the thick of it now, mate. Targets so to meet, you, you know, things to do. So you, so you moved from the shed back into the back into the office. Is that the, uh, is that the difference? <laughs> oh, yeah, I did. I did. Yes, yes. I'm back at the desk. Things are moving. It's busy, actually. It's busy. Everyone I'm talking to um, is um, is pretty busy. So you know, there's a couple of gloomy forecasts around for the second half of the year. I think I read one on your uh, website today. Where no, was... you certainly did not read it on our website. You wrote you read it on another trashy solar um, solar website. Oh, um, oh. and um, they quoted someone who says that's not what we said. And I even had another person, in fact, another one of our sponsors, Sunwiz, rang up oh. this afternoon and said, Giles, I don't know whether you've seen that story, but don't um, don't write something about it because it's it's trash. So um, I'm Ooh. not too sure. Someone got their knickers in a twist. So, um, yes, that was a prediction Gosh. of a 50% fall in solar installations in the second half. and um, In, in the residential space, I might add. In the residential space. So I'm not too sure. Um, which part of the market it, it expects to sort of fall through the ass? And um, look, I think that the people who were quoted saying that saying, oh, I don't actually think that's what we meant to have said. So look, I'm not too sure whether where it got lost Ooh. in translation. It clearly oh. does, you know. Anyway, so there you go. Sorry, sorry. Well, it's it's I mean, we've been doing for, we've been um, thinking about forecasting for the rest of the year as all businesses, you know, do from time to time. Mm-hmm. And you know, that does depend on your perspective. You know, consumer confidence is volatile at the moment, and um, um, you know, I was preparing something for our board meeting coming up this week and thinking, oh, well, what's what's my view on the rest of the year? You know, where do I think we're going to be? And uh, I'm notoriously conservative um, when it comes mm-hmm. to forecasts, but I, I tell you what, I don't think it's going to be half uh, like that forecast that. was. I think, I think I'd... you know, if anything, if we end up, you know, going back into a deeper lockdown state like we've got in in Victoria at the moment, if that sort of you know manifests elsewhere around, then you know people are going to be thinking more about their energy costs and bills are coming through and people are looking for ways to save money and you know. Solar remains a fantastic investment. And so, you know, with the experience that we've got behind us from the last few months, I can't see that people are suddenly going to go, no, solar doesn't make sense. I think uh, they're actually going to say, actually, it does make sense. Well, I think you're absolutely right. So, yes, look, yeah, look I, I think I can safely predict it's going to be volatile and unpredictable. Um, but um, yes, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's why I'm a journalist, Nigel, and not an analyst. But, um, um, and I can stick all that in the headline. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, who knows what's going to happen, but you do suspect there's going to be more lockdowns. But I just get this, I get the feeling that it's not going to be as severe as, as, as it was that first time around. Um, there oh. will be people, people will be, um, um, well, you know, that first lockdown, I mean, if it, no, one went, no, no one went anywhere. No one did anything. Um, mm. I get the sense now that people are not doing much, but they're still, where possible, going out and they kind of know what they're supposed to be doing and what they're not supposed mm. to be doing. So yeah, we know what to I do. Don't we know how to elbow shake and foot shake. I think people know how to elbow shake, and we may even be allowed to sit alone on park benches even in this lockdown. So you just never know. Mm. Um, mm. You know yeah, I'm with and, you. I, th- I, th- I think people... I think people are just going to get on with it. And, you know, most people do the right thing. Um, apart from some numbnuts, the, the vast majority do the right thing. And, you know, we'll, um, we'll, we'll do a good job like Australia has been doing in the past. Fingers crossed. Well, fingers crossed. And look, what's going to be interesting to see, as you say, with those decisions and people are starting talking about, um, you know, they're being at home and um, they want to get solid for um, lowering um, energy costs. And the other part of that equation, of course, is well, to what extent do they want to have storage? And do they want to have storage because mm-hmm. they want to make money? Do they want to have storage because they want to feel more resilient? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably a powerful thing for some people, but it's not necessarily affordable for many people. And that brings us to, we've got a bit of a different podcast. I mean, normally we have a couple of guests and uh, we might sort of have a bit of a wrap with them or we do a 10-minute interview with your you know, great series of the installers. But today we've got a longer interview. It's something that I did last week, um, even without consulting you, Nigel. So I do apologise for that. But look, it did look too good to be true. And mm. so I just grabbed... This came from Origin Energy. They just announced, um, well, they didn't actually announce it. We actually discovered that they'd um, participated in a fundraising from this uh, US startup called Orison Energy. And it's based in Wyoming, and it's the first solar or battery storage company I've ever seen come out of Wyoming, Wild Bill Hickok Territory, I'm told, by the uh, by the founder. And um, right at the, um, at, at the doors of uh, Yellowstone National Park. There you go. And... Mm. Um, and they've got this plug-and-play battery, which is basically apparently a battery that you, anyone you can basically get. It comes in the mail, and you can basically plug it into the house like any old appliance. And Origin has been the major backer of this, and is going to start running trials at the end of this year, which is what we found when we sort of came up on our little feeds. And so I sat down and had an interview with Eric Clifton, who's the CEO of and founder. He's the CEO and founder of Orison Energy. Eric Clifton, CEO and founder of Orison, uh, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Orison in this past week has um, announced a new fundraising, backed principally, it seems, by Australian utility Origin Energy. And you've talked about your new technology, which is essentially what you call a world-first plug-and-play battery that um, anyone can plug in, uh, you and me, or particularly me and and any listener, just into the socket, into the wall, and off you go. Um, Look, an awful lot to unpack there and fascinating fascinating idea. Let's just take us right back to the beginning, though. Um, Orison Energy is obviously a young company. Um, You're based in Wyoming. How did it come about? Yeah, so uh, for many years, I actually worked in land development here in the uh, U.S., and uh, part of land development is understanding the infrastructure, so all of your, of course, uh, water, utilities, electric, and so on, and it was at the time in the the 2000s, mid-2000s, early 2000s time frame when solar was just catching on, and 
there was just a lot of complication that was happening with renewables uh, coming onto the grid with the conflict of the grid needing to act as storage, uh, which made uh, solar, uh, rooftop solar actually affordable for people for the first time in, you know, the past 40 years. And, uh, and so uh, with all of that, I had kind of an interesting uh, just perspective of being able to see how all that kind of came together. And one of the things that uh, I had spent a lot of time in Southern California with the utilities, they had come back to me and said this new concept around DERs and DERs is distributed energy resources. And they said, we have this idea, this concept uh, that is sort of being foisted on the industry, but we don't really know what that would do. Could you write us a white paper uh, on what it is that that means to you and what you would do if you could do anything. And so the original concept was if we just had storage on each of the uh, major appliances in the home, uh, during the times when everybody is using power and it creates this surge on the grid, which is the peak times, right? The, the more expensive times for the utility because they have to have all this extra reserves waiting for people just in case they need power. If we simply use batteries to offset that, it would help the grid which actually reduces the cost for all of the consumers, but then also allows the grid to be maintained much easier than that kind of the complicated mess that's happened with rooftop solar and everything else. And so the the, the real idea came from the utility asking me, what, what is it that you would do that could help us, but actually would be attractive or appealing to our consumer? And so that's that's really how the, the idea, the catalyst of the idea came about. And how, how long ago are we talking about? That was actually in 2013. So it's been quite some time. 2013. And so you had this idea then, and then you actually went about and tried to sort of develop this new battery technology. Because, I mean, batteries do exist. Um, they come in all forms and different sizes, uh, mostly reasonably big. Um, they are usually really reason <laughs> reasonably complex to install. Um, they require electricians and they require special agreements and um, procedures from the local utilities and things like that. Um, how do you go about um, sort of bypassing all of that and, um, and doing something different? Yeah, so you really have to look at things through a bit of a different lens. And like I said, because I came from the land development uh, side of things, I got to look at everything from a 30,000 foot level and just look at how things worked and and what was broken and what worked well. And so really the, the whole um, need for having self-installation had a lot to do with the complication. Even the utilities were struggling with having to do all of the permits and approvals. So it wasn't even just about them wanting to control it. It was just the time and the extra resources it would take to even do that for solar. And now you add storage into that, it becomes you know that much more onerous. And then if you have to roll a truck out there and, and, and have a body, all of those things not only are cost prohibitive, but they're also time prohibitive. And so when the first idea of this happened back in 2013, you have to understand that was before the storage industry was anything. The only group that I'm aware of that was around and they were just getting started uh, was doing commercial installs. They weren't even doing it for residential because it just didn't make sense. And so if you look at it from just a purely economics basis, you know the cost of batteries continue to drop, right? And so our, our cost of goods actually goes down, so does the rest of the industry. But what doesn't drop actually goes the other direction is a warm body, insurance, installation, and permitting because all of those things cost more for people to actually do and, and the cost of living goes up. And so 
as all of our competition's pricing will continue to actually go up, ours will actually come down if you're looking at the total cost of install. And so it was imperative that we made sure we do that. And so the only way that that would actually work out is if we were considered an appliance. And to be considered an appliance, you have to make sure that you're never putting power back onto the grid or have the capabilities of putting power back onto the grid. Because once you do, you're considered grid tied. And once you're grid tied, you now have to have a permit because you're basically asking the utility to use their infrastructure. Whereas we keep everything on the customer side of the meter. So therefore we are actually a simple appliance at the home, just like a refrigerator would be. So then apart from the ability or the inability to export back into the grid or, or be grid tied, then your battery sort of performs and looks like and is built similarly to most other batteries? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, we have the same components, right? Uh, we have uh, power electronics, so an inverter that's built into our system. So the part that's a little unique about ours is ours is all, all in one unit. It's not a bunch of components. And so we have our proprietary inverters. We have uh, communications, uh, hardware and software that, that reside on the system. And then we have uh, battery packs, which you can liken to like a, a home power tool where they slide in place and snap in. And so they're individual battery packs. Um, and that really kind of makes up the basis of the system. But one of the major things that we had to do that our com competition doesn't have to do if they export to the grid is we had to make sure we could monitor everything that's happening on the customer's side of the, uh, their meter. So we have a, uh, a self-installable energy monitor, which is also a first in the industry. And that uh, has sensors that actually adheres to uh, the face of the DIN rail. So you're not opening the box. You're not using CT clamps or anything else that an electrician would be required to install. It actually adheres to the face of the DIN rail and tells you exactly what's happening within those, that home. And so that enables us to understand fully what the house is doing and how much we can actually put onto, uh, we'll call it the customer's nano grid, right? What, what's on the customer side of the meter. And we can only go to the point where the meter goes to zero instead of going to negative, which is what solar does. So literally just plug it into a PowerPoint. You, uh, you find a yep. PowerPoint that, um, that you want to put the battery in, just plug it in, and then it communicates, it's, sort of, it's dealing with the electric system within the household. That is correct. That is so, correct. So, what's it? so, okay, so it's plugged in. What's it then doing now? I guess in the first instance, let's say it's a sunny, let's say you've plugged it in at 10 o'clock in the morning and it's all working. Um, you've got some rooftop solar. Um, you might not be using all of that. So the battery is going to fill itself up. Yep. And when, and presumably then um, it's going to be powering the resources of your home up to its capacity then. So you might be just, um, got a few lights on, in which case it's quite happily handling that. Yep. Um, then it might come. Then a kettle might come on, or another machine might come on, which draws more power. But then, so it, it'll just it, it'll do what it can, and then the rest will come from the grid. Yep. So so there's a couple of things that we do that's very unique. So the 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 first one is when you have solar, and that solar is exporting to the grid during a peak time, and that kettle comes on, it creates a frequency droop, which is a disturbance. And that solar going back onto the grid actually magnifies that. So it makes the problem worse on the grid because remember now the grid is acting as a battery, right? And so that actually is a big problem for uh, the infrastructure beyond your meter. And so just at a minimum, Orison will actually pick up that 
kettle as it kicks on and, and drop that down to whatever capacity we have available. It may not do 100%, but it maybe it does 20%, maybe it does 80%, right? And so that allows the customer mm-hmm. then to understand uh, just by having one unit in their house, really how their house works and really what that's doing. So they could say, oh, that took out 20%. I need another four of these to make it you know, really cover what I want it to do personally. And so you can step into it easily without having to make this massive upfront investment, not knowing if it's really going to work for you or not. And it, and it, it, it tailors itself to each individual and is totally scalable. So um, it makes it a very simple experience for customers. Okay, and then pretty much everything else that would normally happen happens. So the solar, that's you correct. might have five kilowatts on your roof. That's more than the capacity of the battery. It'll continue. It'll fill up the battery, and then it'll continue doing what it normally does, which is exporting back into the grid, um, depending on how many of these batteries you've got um, in your home. That is correct. What about the safety aspects of it? In Australia, we've um, just had um, flagged to us quite strict new standards. You know, these lithium-ion batteries, they're considered to be some sort of form of risk that need to be properly installed, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there was even talk of putting them in a bunker outside in a special shed. Um, <laughs> where, where, where do you imagine your battery would go, and, um, and why shouldn't it go into, in, into a bunker in the shed like the rest of them? Yeah, so so a couple of things. We, we've actually worked on safety compliance for many years. And, and the reason why we started the company in 2013 and we're just now coming to market is, you know, our intent was to look at global electrical code and safety standards. And, and as the lithium-ion standards started to emerge, it wasn't just looking at what the standards were, but it was also looking at the intent of the standards and, and what they were trying to achieve with the safety. And so we've put in some significant redundancies. We, we just passed uh, through our first uh, set of lab tests, which says that we're compliant with current standards in Australia. But you know, as we move forward, it's really going to be a, uh, a work in progress with us and Origin as we move into the market. And I'm, I'm not a regulatory, especially an Australian regulatory uh, specialist by any means. So um, I don't know that I can fully answer that question other than the fact that we've gone above and beyond uh, to make sure that these things are extremely safe for people. Well, I guess um, the fact that Origin Energy is interested and its operations are in Australia, then it presumably sees a, ra- uh, a way around this issue. Um, just just going back to the operations of the battery then, um, batteries are often useful because they provide standalone power when the grid goes down or there's a minor blackout and things like that. Can you just explain what happens with this battery? I understand that um, the home is not an island, but it will power whatever appliances it actually can um, um, power within the house. Can you explain the difference between it? Well, is there a difference between a standard backup battery and this one? Yeah. So, so in a, in a standard situation, most of the time they'll put in a sub panel that has a couple of circuits that you say are my primary circuits and that battery would be plugged into or wired into those circuits. And so if the grid goes down, that sub panel remains powered, but the rest of the home doesn't. So it helps you kind of segregate and pick what it is that you want powered. Uh, the way that Orison works is a, a little bit different. We uh, took a lot of cues more from, again, appliance base, so more like a UPS where, uh, say you have your refrigerator uh, near an Orison unit or you place the origin, Orison unit behind the refrigerator, you can actually plug that refrigerator directly into uh, the Orison unit. So when the grid goes down, it, it just simply acts as a UPS. 
um, there, there is a, on our smart cord, there is a provision for what would basically be, um, like a, a, a surge protector or, or a power strip, right? And so you can plug, plug multiple items directly into that. So if the grid is down, you have the ability to, uh, use that power again, just like a UPS. And then the, the place where we're going, and this is uh, still to be determined ultimately by what regulation ends up being. And the reason why we went this route was so we had a very clear path, which is still extremely functional for people because it gives them that backup power locally. But the place where we're going with the system is uh, that the system actually would uh, tell the customer, hey, the grid is down and uh, you have it plugged into this circuit. And what I mean by that is where the power strips are, the um, uh, energy monitor strips are on the breaker uh, itself, it'll have a little LED that lights up. And we tell the customer, go open up that uh, breaker and the customer does that. And then the app says it's open. We check to make sure that it is indeed. And then we can actually resume powering anything on that individual circuit. So um, that allows you to have a little bit broader, or if you're just trying to say power lights within a home, uh, you can actually make sure Orison is on that one. So it gives you that option. Oh, okay. So, so halfway through the conversation, I was imagining you sort of picking up the, uh, the plug for the fridge and sort of putting it into this, um, into this, directly into the battery, but it's not, that's not quite the way it works. <laughs> it's, no, it's, I mean, um, you could do that, but break, yeah. yeah, that's a little bit more clunky, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. Now, um, a lot of the battery usage, you know, when we're talking about distributed energy um, in Australia and um, the the market operator, for instance, um, is very keen about getting more visibility over what's actually on people's homes and inside people's homes, i.e. solar panels and rooftops and uh, electric vehicles and things like that. And there's a big move um, or a lot of talk about moving to v virtual power plants, but this won't play a role in any of those, will it? Because um, it's not exporting, so it won't be a, a controllable or accessible load or, or, or resource for, for EVPPs. Actually, we are probably the most effective uh, VPP that you could ever have. And the reason why is where you're looking at trying to use a customer's battery, which is fairly small, and trying to do grid services, that really, the impact, even if you put lots of them on the grid, on the customer side of the meter, we're not talking about a centralized location, but actually at the customer's, the customer's home. That small battery is now going to get overused by grid services, which doesn't positively impact the customer for a very long time because you're basically killing the cycle life of those batteries, right? And so the way we've used uh, view VPP is one, the frequency disruption uh, piece that I explained earlier. And then the second piece that's probably more important is called a negawatt, N-E-G. So negawatt and doing that is basically us taking the meter to zero and taking the demand in, think, think of the end of a feeder line, you've got a thousand homes and the utility says we need dispatchable power on this feeder. By us taking demand completely off of that feeder, we effectively did the same thing without creating upstream congestion on the grid itself. And we've now stopped the complication with frequency and everything else happening on the grid. So we are very much a dispatchable uh, system, but it's a dispatchable system that meets the customer, the consumer's needs, as well as the utility. So it, it never exceeds what that individual consumer is doing, trying to help its neighbor. It's just your battery stays with you and what your needs and your demands are. 
Okay, so it's a dispatchable thing and it's providing that service simply by being dead. It's not able to respond to any particular demands or commands or requests from the grid operator or anything like that. It's um, it's it, it's static. It's there. It, it's doing that job that you're saying, but but simply by being there and, and, and providing that service. No, it actually does both. So so one of the things that we're working on, and, and it's really, this is probably a question for Origin, but as we move forward into the pilot that uh, we have coming up with them, one of the things we're exploring is how that VPP service can work to benefit both uh, them on the energy trading side, but also their consumer. And so uh, it is a cloud-connected system. And so the initial use of it is really just setting those schedules for the consumers to make their life a lot easier and make sure that we're, we're addressing things the most effective way possible. And then ultimately, as they move forward down the road, it is how do we do those uh, VPP services that are truly dispatchable. So one of the things in the US, a little bit different market, but still similar, um, is they're looking at not just a time of use type of, of scenario, they're looking at a dynamic uh, time of use program, which means every one minute to 10 minute increments, the, the pricing may change as they do energy trading on the grid, depending on what's happening with renewals and volatility and everything else. And so having that dispatchable uh, load and demand on both sides uh, of the meter gives a lot of flexibility to the operator, but in turn, that service itself provides an extreme amount of value to the consumer at the end of the day. And so that's one of the things we're exploring, but I definitely encourage you to talk to Origin about that and the plans of uh, what we have there. Yeah, no, and, and it was kind of interesting that comment that you actually made about um, the sort of the bigger the grid connected VPPs. Um, we actually get, started to get some feedback from some of the people involved in some of those VPP trials, and it's kind yeah. of you know we don't feel like we've got control of our battery anymore. It's kind of not doing what yes. we want it to do. It's kind of that's right. what somebody else wants it to do. So that's an interesting one. So um, tailoring that to um, to to the customer requirements is an interesting one. So what size battery? I mean, you, you've you've tailored this at 2.2, 1.8 kilowatt, 2.2 kilowatt hours. Correct. Why did you choose that number? And what sort of system does that suit? I mean, is there is there a magical is there a magical formula here? If you've got five kilowatts of solar and you average use that you should have one or two of these, or if you have a smaller rooftop panel, or is it easy enough to have two? Is 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 there? Are you kind of thinking about how this might work with people's systems? Yeah. So so the the main driver for that actually was self installation. So. Uh, I could make it bigger. I mean, we could make it 10 kilowatt hours. It doesn't matter. But the problem is, is when you're looking at a, you know, 12 or 14 kilowatt hour system, you're looking at, you know, a significantly heavy piece of equipment that you're going to need a forklift to move, right? And so that kind of reduces the mm. ability to say it's self-installable. And so, so we looked at it from two perspectives. The first perspective was use case. And again, going back to land development past, we did a lot of low-income housing. So we had a lot of single-family uh, flats that was like studio apartments, right? And when you look at that high-density housing footprint, they're really looking at some lights, a refrigerator, and maybe a talking head on a screen for some time. And 2.2 kilowatt hours would give them about 48 hours worth of backup power if the grid was down. And we felt that was a really nice size that sort of met um, a, a small use case but then could scale very easily. And so when the system is shipped, uh, it comes in three major components. So you have the, the panel itself, which has the power electronics and the communication piece. And you have then two battery packs. And each of those are 1.1 kilowatt hour battery packs. And 
the the uh, system is basically split in weight into thirds. So um, it, it's very easy for one person to move, and it makes it a lot easier to ship. And so that that was really the driver behind mm-hmm. the size. And again, modular is modular. Think of Legos. You don't ever buy one Lego. You buy a bunch of Legos because it fits your need, <laughs> whatever it is you're building, right? <laughs> yeah. No, and you, you also said this is interesting for apartment dwellers and things like that. Now, they don't have their own solar. What's in it for them? Is it because they're sort of dodging high price and peak pricing events um, through this battery? Is that, is that, the, is that the proposition? Yeah, that, that is one of the propositions. The other proposition is looking at uh, people in a higher density area. So say a large... Uh, apartment building that has maybe 60 to 100 units in it. Uh, When you have that scenario, the meter becomes the building's meter, and you can actually do energy trading within that building uh, using our system. And so it allows some really interesting scenarios on especially grid services when you're talking about, you know, every 500 systems is a megawatt hour worth of uh, storage or dispatchable uh, load, right? And so... um, apartment buildings start to become very interesting. And so those economics, again, are, are somewhat future leading. But the reality is, is with all of the shelter in place going on, the most important thing in the world is feeling safe and secure and knowing you have some backup power. People are really familiar with things mm-hmm. like, you know, cell phone chargers and backup. We're, we're familiar with being connected all the time, but walking around with a laptop that's not physically tethered. And so we see Orison is exactly that. It's, it's the next step in battery control, safety, security, and sort of having that always on connection and being able to have simple things, right? We need to have a cell phone charge. We need to have some light in the house. We want the coffee to come on at some point and we want to make sure our refrigerator stays on. But most importantly, we want the Wi-Fi to stay on so we know what's happening around the world. Orison provides that safety security and it, it, it doesn't segregate between single-family detached house with solar on the roof, it's really for everybody. So, but in that apartment scenario that you just sort of mentioned, so that might actually be like a utility-driven thing. It's kind of got a whole bunch of people, customers in a building, and it's sort of saying, look, you know, if we do this, then we can deliver this service to you and and, and lower your costs or whatever. Or do you imagine there being a series of individual choices from from the um, individual apartment dwellers? So I think it's always going to depend on the market, right? One of the things we're seeing in areas mm. like Europe where they have a, a community solar project, well, now they, the customers can say, well, I want to take more of that solar on during the day, so I'm going to actually store power during the day at my own personal house. And so we're seeing a collective of people in a, in a small neighborhood using a community solar and, and sort of divvying that up by how much they can store and then use in the later hours of the you know, evening. Um, but in, in areas, you know, depending on the market where you are in the world, uh, there's significant value for simple arbitrage, but, uh, but yeah, I would say that a lot of the higher density things, uh, if it's not for shelter in place and personal safety, the utility is really going to drive a program that, that works well for that consumer. But the nice thing is, it's the first time that now you have a product that's really good for the consumer and gives them choice but is also adding extreme value to the utility, you know, because if you look at things like smart thermostats, there's a lot of potential value if it's used right, if it's put together, if it's set up, if it stays connected, right? And all those things, this is one of those things that uh, always stays connected and it always has the ability to uh, better the customer's life as as things evolve and, and programs change. 
Now, um, one of your main backers is Origin Energy, and clearly there's going to be a trial upcoming on that. Um, have you had any bites from any other utilities? And I guess we're talking about international markets because Origin would probably like to keep that investment to itself in Australia. But um, what's the response been so far in the US and Europe and other places? Yeah, actually, there's been a significant interest. Uh, you know, it's funny, when we first started the company, uh, it was always around a utility-driven model. And as we moved a few years into the future, the utilities came back and said, how do we know our consumers want this? And so we went back to uh, focusing on uh, direct-to-consumer, and we uh, did a Kickstarter campaign, and, and we did 700% of that goal. And, and we used that as a, a, a proof point to show that consumers are interested in this beyond just uh, regular ROI or um, you know uh, a lot of the models that a lot of the other solar com- our storage companies were using at the time, and uh, and that focused uh, direction to look at the the direct to consumer model actually brought a massive amount of utilities from around the world, particularly across Europe and Latin America. Um, but we've had we have interest and in, we're talking with groups in India, Africa, uh, and across Asia as well. So. Um, it's it's one of those things that uh, utilities tend to be risk adverse and and move slowly. Uh, there are a few like Origin that are very forward leaning and have a consumer focus, and uh, and tend to you know support new technologies that help expand the market. And so what we're seeing right now is uh, we're starting a number of trials. Uh, we have uh, six different trials in different uh, geographic regions around the world that start next month. And those trials actually are with utilities that will help not only uh, define what is necessary for their individual markets, uh, a lot of it is around safety standards and and just deployment methodology and how those business models work, but a lot of it's around us gathering data so that we can make a better experience for those consumers in each of those markets. And do those trials next month include one in Australia with Origin? It sure does. Yeah, we actually have quite a few that are going in uh, with them and starting trialing next month. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And 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 what what's the scale of that? Is like you know fifty, a hundred, a thousand, or whatever? It, well, so these are for again for us to understand what's happening uh, on the ground. So we're starting with uh, I believe it's somewhere in the tens number, and then it scales mm-hmm. up from there. Okay. And um, final question, where are you manufacturing these um, these products? Yep. So our uh, main manufacturing, all, all of it was designed and, and actually engineered here in the U.S. Um, our primary manufacturing, our partners between the U.S. and actually uh, Belgium, uh, but the manufacturing has ended up in China by default uh, but we are currently working on spooling up our long-term manufacturing in India and then uh, assembly in the com- countries of origin. So uh, the hope is that uh, uh, in Africa, in Australia, and in the U.S. and in Europe, we will actually have final assembly of those components that are being built uh, in India. Well, we'll be watching very much with interest on um, on the development of the technology and um, what Origin in Australia has um, in mind for the uh, for, for the rollout of this. Um, Eric Clifton, thank you very much for joining this podcast. Thank you. I truly appreciate you having me. And so that was um, Eric Clifton, the uh, CEO and founder of Origin Energy. Interestingly, Nigel, I've actually talked to the guys at Origin um, 
uh, as well to find out what their view of it is and their strategy and how they see it fitting into the market. I mean, look, a bunch of questions for me. One mm. is, I mean, can you really have plug and play? Can you really have a, a thing like that that you can actually just sort of plug in and, and, and will the regulators allow it? Um, two, will people go for it? And three, was Origin's view that current, most offerings for battery storage now is pretty expensive. They sort of see it in the terms of people come in for a quote for a solar. It comes, you know, six, seven, eight thousand or whatever, maybe a bit more depending on the size of the system. You throw another 10 grand or so or even more for, for a battery and people go, mm. and that's maybe one of the reasons why battery storage hasn't taken off. They see this as a smaller system, 2.2 kilowatt hours. And they see that as an interim measure or something that people can deal with because the bigger mobile storage will come with electric vehicles, you know, basically a battery on wheels. So that's the way the Origin's thinking, which I found fascinating anyway. But so what, what, what's your sort of take on the whole thing? Yeah, look, I'm with you. I mean, I've, I've been, I've been, a, I've been a bit quietly obsessed with V2G for years. Um, uh, I actually put in a grant application about six years ago for a massive V2G trial. Uh, tried to get some money and get a couple of hundred electric motorcycles into the market as a, as an experiment on V2G, and um, just ran out of steam. Unfortunately, it was a bit early the parade. Um, and um, you know, it's interesting with V2G. There's been trials around the place. Uh, you've talked about the the one that the ACT's just announced where they're going to put 50 vehicles in and and, and experiment with it. And you know. The, the manufacturers have shied away from it historically. Although we, I see Tesla have now started talking to it about being able, talking about it being able to enable it via um, firmware updates and so forth. And so, you know, it seems to make a whole lot of sense um, to me. It's a big battery, typically in a vehicle, and they're getting bigger and bigger, and they're robust and they're extraordinarily safe because they have to meet all the vehicle standards. So, you know, um, and you know, if, if you know, if everything goes wrong, you just pull the handbrake off and push it outside into the garden and let it burn. So, you know, V2G does make sense for a whole lot of reasons to me. So I'm with Origin on that one. The problem that we've got, of course, is that the electric vehicle market is just lagging terribly in Australia. So, you know, it kind of pushes it all out into the future a bit. The idea of a plug-in battery is quite interesting, though, and it, well, I was really intrigued um, listening to the interview, actually, and reading your follow-up article talking to Origin, that they're really going after the renter's market, and they're kind of going after this little niche. They're going after a niche in a niche market, which is an interesting angle um, to me. Um, but I I do like – it doesn't – doesn't necessarily make great economic sense, but I'm a bit of a fan of small stuff uh, that is highly modular. I've actually got, just like you, Giles, I've actually got about a two kilowatt hour battery in my um, in my home, and I'm a bit of a fan of of the modular approach and being able to just add more and more and more and more and more as time and budget and everything else stacks up. Um, the key, of course, is the economics, and it hasn't stacked up so far. Um, you know, given that this thing just plugs in and that's cool, um, that makes it nice and simple. I don't know whether it's really great to have batteries just hanging off walls and people being people, they'll, you know, sit them on a nice bit of carpet and stack a few cushions on top of it and all that other stuff. Um, but the principle's nice, but I don't know, Giles. I guess well, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Well, look, I thought it was an interesting one anyway, so I'm um, just to throw out it there. Is. And um, 
Probably not a great one for the installers, seeing they won't have anything to install because the idea is that it'll arrive in the mail or on the back of a truck and people just plug it in themselves. But look, anyway, it's fascinating to see how the big retailers are kind of looking at the future and trying to position themselves for that future because they kind of know that the future is different. It's going to be digital, it's going to be distributed, it's going to be democratised, and they're still trying to figure out how they get to clip the ticket on the way through and um, mm. keep their business mm. models going as close as to what it is that they've you got. Know what, you but know anyway, what? You know, the other thing that intrigued me about it was, of course, that the, the, the key to making this work, it's like distributed, distributed energy, right? Um, where you've got, uh, you know, theoretically, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these maybe in, in a, an apartment block or whatever the case may be, and people can add to them and take them away and all those kinds of things. And they talked a bit about their their monitoring solution or their metering solution because, of course, you've got to know what's going on in the home. So you've got these little widgets that have to go in the meter box and they think they've got that lick so that you don't need an electrician to do that. And and then, you know, they've all got to be smart. They've all got to be grid connected. They've all got to be internet connected and they've all got to be centrally controlled um, to some degree to make all that work. And that bit is notoriously difficult, particularly in Australia, where our Wi-Fi and our NBN is a bit woeful. So, you know, to me, the 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 highest risk piece of this whole puzzle is actually going to be how do you actually, you know, understand the consumption that's going on in the home? How do you get the information reliably in and out of the home and in and out of those products? That has proved to be a really, really big challenge for many players in this market. Um, and it's something I spend um, yeah, my days crying about um, because we face the same challenges in our space. So, um, yeah, that's that's yes. going to be a really interesting part. And, um, you know, everyone kind of assumes that Australia's got this wonderful connectivity and we don't. We don't, yes. It's described in international circles as the Internet of Things and in Australia it's probably the Internet of what? I can't get a connection. I'm struggling. Anyway, hey, look, let's move on. Look, not much other news because we were just um, we were just on, on on air a week ago, but um, a couple of interesting things came up. One was the um, a bit of a crackdown on a uh, telemarketing company doing in in, in the solar space. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, unwanted phone calls. So um, we've always suggested to people that anyone sort of ringing up cold over the phone is um, probably not a good thing, and to be ignored and. Um, and these guys look like they've just broken the rules anyway. They have. And and again, I mean, it's it's kind of two things are interesting around this. One is that um, it's great to see uh, the AMCA uh, continuing to, you know, watch out for this and to pull people up and to prosecute, which is great. Um, we don't want to see people doing the wrong thing. And if, uh, if they do do the wrong thing, they deserve to be caught. Um, so that's good. Um, you know, um, on the, on the flip side, uh, the AMCA did point out that complaints about this type of stuff have gone down. Um, so, you know, a bit of regulation, bit of bit of big stickery, if you like, um, seems to be keeping things a little bit tighter out there. And I, I don't know what was going on with this particular company and why they thought it was um, the right thing to do. But um, it, it is good to see uh, the rule makers and the regulators continuing to police it. Look, that might be it for the um, for the solar wrap up. Look, just briefly, just pointing to some electric vehicle news. We've actually got some. Um, we've got a firm date for battery day, so September twenty second. This actually goes back to our original um, story today about you know 
batteries and vehicle to grid because if Tesla does come out and produce this sort of million mile battery, in other words, a battery that lasts you know longer than the car and a range you know a range of you know a thousand kilometers, then things like vehicle to grid will probably be no much of an issue because it's a, if it's a million mile battery, then um, it's not going to worry about the degradation you get from sort of more often just sort of discharging um into the home and into the grid so um that could mm. be that could be fascinating and um god how about tesla's share price share price i mean every day every day over the last week it has increased in value by the equivalent market value of ford wow so, how many how many decades did it take to to build up the value of Ford? Well, it's obviously sort of decreased from its peak, and here is Tesla just basically adding that value each day. Unbelievable! That's quite remarkable, isn't it? Um, and uh, yeah, this this story is abounding about new models coming out and you know reviews everywhere and everything else. So you know, good on them, good on them. It's great to see. It's great to see the scale. That's what we need is that scale, right? Well, the scale and the innovation, and it's sort of partly a tech story and it's partly an auto story, and it's kind of all sort of converging into the two. And I guess that's what's kind of interesting and exciting um, about that sort of whole sort of story. So, yeah, we're going to be watching that with interest. And I think that actual results are coming out next week, so we might get more of a taste of where they're heading. Nigel, um, Thank you very much. Um, we had a bit of a sort of a hit and miss trying to sort of a tag team to, to get together this week, but we've done it and um, we've done this interview and um, we'll be back again in a fortnight. I look forward to it, mate. Yeah, and look, thank you. A shout out to our sponsors once again, Clinergy and Solar Analytics and um, SunWiz, of course. And thanks to all those sponsors for your ongoing support. And um, thank you all there to the listeners out there. Um, check out also the uh, Energy Insiders forecast, um, some interesting stuff there. And also coming up, which actually relates to distributed energy um, later on this week. Um, can't say too much more about that because it's kind of under wraps for the moment. But anyway, um, we'll be back on Solar Insiders in a fortnight. Look forward to your feedback. Talk to you then. Bye for now. Solar Insiders was brought to you by Clenergy, the providers of high-quality mounting systems for residential, commercial and utility-scale solar projects. With in-house engineering and projects divisions, Clenergy provides a unique edge with its expert advice. Let Clenergy find the right framework for any solar application. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by SunWiz, Australia's leading service provider to the solar and storage industry. SunWiz's new partnership with OpenSolar will amplify the value delivered by their world-leading solar software platform. Run your business at maximum velocity with pro setup, training and assistance. Visit sunwiz.com.au. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by Solar Analytics, designers and suppliers of smart solar monitoring. Visit solaranalytics.com.au, get empowered and make the most of your home energy.